Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth, the Nature, Environment, Climate Change, Sustainability podcast that asks, is there anything that you and I can do to help save the planet just a little bit? I'm Emma. I'm Lloyd. And this week we are talking about eco-anxiety. We're going to take you through what it is, um, how you can deal with it, and also uh, hearing from some of our listeners about their experiences with eco-anxiety. And you know it's going to be a serious episode because Emma's wearing her light-blocking glasses these are my actual oh, they're, glasses they're, now. They're, they're, they're not the blue light ones. These, are, oh, these right. are new. Well, <laughs> they do look you know like my old blue really light ones. Serious no, this, <laughs> this is. I can't remember where I put my contact lenses, so my serious glasses are on. Yes. Well, let's start with our um, with our normal segment before we get into some of the heavy stuff. Although I am really excited about this episode. We've been thinking about it for a long time, and I think it might be a really useful one. I found it really useful doing the research anyway. But before we run away with that train, Lloyd, what one good thing have you done this week to save the planet? Um, we're always banging on about how you should get in contact with people, uh, not not necessarily socially, but uh, to to get in contact <laughs> with companies, for example, um, to push them to do to do a little bit better. Decision makers, um, and I, I sent a couple of emails to some uh, manufacturers, some brands we sort of have in the house. The prime example is uh, the manufacturers of Teddy's baby formula. Ooh. We buy what I think is a really good one. It's all organic and, you know, it, it comes like from the UK, etc. Et but um, when it comes to the recycling advice on the back, it just says tin widely recycled and it really bothers me. It doesn't say tin widely recycled. It just says widely recycled. So it bothers me because I can't quite tell exactly what it's made of. It's, it's slightly dubious wow. unless I get the bolt cutters out, which I might have to. To have a look at what's inside, because you know, you know, sometimes you buy those tins that are part cardboard, part tin, and it's not really one or the other, and you're just like, I don't know where to put oh, it. Okay. Um, so basically, this space sound really silly. I just sent them an email being like, can you please just say exactly what materials go into this? So you know, anyone can actually say, okay, it goes in that recycling bag. That that that's all. Um, that's a great thing to have done. I mean, d- did they respond? Not yet. I'll let you know. <laughs> they, they might not. They might not. It's like, like you said, it should be it should be such a simple thing to do. And if they've already put things like, oh, we're really organic and we're in the UK and they've got sustainability like half in their mindset, you'd think that leaning them towards being better about recycling and communicating that would be all right. Let's see. I can pretty pretty much guess where it needs to be recycled. I'm, I'm pretty sure it goes in, in the metal recycling because I'm pretty sure it's all tin. But just to be mm. sure, I wanted to email them. And also it just bugs me when, yeah, it's not hard, like you say, to, to just pop the materials that go just on it because yeah, yeah they'll say oh yeah lid plastic recycling blah, blah blah rest of it widely recycled and it's like does that mean i have to take it to a supermarket like uh, like with those special little bins they've this got does the it thing. mean i can recycle yeah. at home i don't know and then it depends like so, some brands it their packaging depends on where you live in the country what your local council can deal with so yeah just um getting a prod on yeah well, I look forward to following the saga and I hope that they respond. But no, I, I do think that's a really good thing to do, to you know, talk to people and decision makers and companies and just say, hey, can you do a bit better, please? Yeah, I like to think so. Because you never know, they might. Especially if a lot of us are asking for them to do something a bit better and you're being specific about what it is you want them to do. Yeah. I think that's the, the easiest mechanism to, to drive I'm, change. I'm fast approaching 30th birthday, so I think it's time I um, <gasps> you got into well. that old man spirit of sending angry letters <laughs> oh, do we say angry or do we say constructive? Uh, yes. 
That's a good point. Yeah, you are knocking on 30's door. I'm not a million miles behind you on that one. There we go. We, we, can, we can have a joint eco party. We should do how to throw an environmental party. I'm going to add that to our list of things, to our list of episodes. I mean, we, we, right we've now. already done a sustainable alcohol episode, so I think it's halfway there, really, isn't it? <laughs> go on then, before we start planning our summers too much. Uh, what, what more good thing have you done, Emma? So mine is more of an extension of something that I've been doing for a really long time, and that's that my food at the allotment is starting to look <gasps> yeah. like it will actually be food. So remind me what food you've got there. Oh, okay. Let me walk you through. So basically at the moment, my beetroots and my carrots are starting to look like maybe in a month's time, they're going to be ready. They are starting to resemble foodstuffs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to just leafy greens. My parsnips are cracking on. They're looking pretty good. I've got some potatoes hanging on under there as well. They probably will be coming up relatively soon. And I've got a courgette and some squash and some tomatoes and some peas. They're all fairly early at the morning at the moment. They're not going to be cropping immediately. You've got so much. I'm getting there. You're going to make the world's best soup. I'm getting there. Yes, definitely. So many soups. I'm really keen to bring my kind of camping stove from the van down to the allotment and just fry up stuff that I've picked there and then. That's basically my overarching fantasy. Zero food miles. That would be excellent. Yeah, literally eat it straight out of the ground. Yeah, that's that's kind of my... Like um... a real herbivore. (laughs) Exactly. So I haven't done anything new but it is taking up a lot of my time, so I've given it a second or third or maybe fifth at this point mention on the podcast. Oh, they're, they're, they're your babies. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. I, I understand. <laughs> that I'm going to eat, yeah. That you're going to eat. Tasty, <laughs> tasty babies. Mm. Uh, they make me feel better, and that's a very tenuous segue into the episode. Spending time at my allotment <laughs> that was makes really me feel better. Because it's very mindful. Yes. And also it's an action that I'm doing to reduce my carbon footprint. Um, So with that in mind, let's have a little exploration of what eco-anxiety is. And then maybe you and I can share our experiences. And we've got a few notes from listeners as well, just to really flesh out the episode. Yeah. So I'm sure um, a lot of our listeners have experience of this anyway. I know I get it sometimes. Mm -hmm. So... Eco-anxiety is basically a chronic fear of, of environmental doom. Uh, yes, the American Psychological Association has described eco-anxiety as a source of stress which is caused by, and I quote, watching the slow and seemingly irrevocable impacts of climate change unfold and worrying mm. about the future for oneself, one's children, and later generations. And that kind of very mm. wraps it up very nicely. It's this fear of the path we're heading down climate-wise, pollution-wise, um, and particularly this sort of feeling of helplessness uh, that it's mm. all out of our hands. As individuals, we can't do anything about it. So The Lancet, uh, which is, you know, if you're, you're, a, you're a medically inclined, per, uh, inclined <laughs> person, is uh, a sort of leading uh, British-based medical journal. And in one of the articles published there, they surveyed 10,000 16 to 25 year olds over 10 different countries and they found that about 60 percent were very or extremely worried about climate change 84 percent were moderately worried uh, more than 50 percent felt sad anxious angry powerless helpless and mm. guilty oh and then added to that is uh, nearly half said feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily life and how they function day to day so it's not just a worry it's how it then affects your ability to just do basic tasks. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I've also heard, so um, speaking to a psychologist with Beaver Trust a while ago, I've also heard it termed eco-grief and climate grief. So sometimes I'll use those as quite interchangeable yeah, that, terms. That, that's really and nice. Because yeah. the feelings associated with the anxiety also often quite mirror a grieving experience because you're, you're grieving what you would like the future to be or this kind of sense of loss at, of the environmental health, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes when practitioners are looking to deal with these feelings of eco-anxiety, they can learn from the anxiety and also from the grief kind of fields of, of helping people. But it's, but it's really tough because it's becoming increasingly prevalent. Especially when young people. Yeah. Or worrying. Exactly. It's, it's strongly disproportionately common in children and young people, but also in other communities who have the least resources to overcome the challenges that the climate crisis presents. So yeah, children a lot of the time feel hopeless because they are children and they know that they can't or feel like they can't kind of change the world. But also in kind of like um, lower economic or socioeconomic groups, it's also very prevalent as well, which I found interesting and distressing. Yes, yeah. It's, it's that classic scenario of the people most impacted by climate change. Precisely. Are, are the ones that um, contribute the least and have the mm. least say in, in how to, how to do, do something about it. Uh, the, yeah, the, and is, I, there was a survey in 2020 in England of psychiatrists, child psychiatrists yeah. in England, and nearly 60% of them said that, yes, I am seeing child or children or young people that are experiencing eco-anxiety. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it becomes a case of, uh, well, normally anxiety, you would sort of be recommended to speak to a therapist, for example, uh, or to, 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 to go through a sort of therapy course whereby your problem's broken down, you sort of work out how uh, you can do something about it in yourself, like how you can address individual points and, mm. and ultimately sort of see that, that the problem isn't as big as you think it is. But the problem with the eco-anxiety is it's addressing cataclysmic yeah. outlook, isn't it? It's like real problems that you actually, as we said, you can't necessarily do anything about. Well, you, you can sort of help address it, which is what we're going to go into later, but yeah. that, that fundamental but core thing. But you can't thing. tackle it as a one person, yeah. can you? Which which makes it hard. And I, I also read that because climate change is, is a human-caused disaster, it's even harder to deal with than things that are like natural disasters when you can kind of blame yeah. just like, oh, the really bad weather or something, or oh, there's been an earthquake, and that's why our community's collapsed. Um, but to then have that kind of the underpinning blame of everything that's happening with the climate crisis literally pointing fingers at humans and human activity yep. is even harder for a lot of us to kind of wrap our heads around and, and deal with because you're like well we are you know this is our fault yeah and a lot of that kind of guilt drives the anxiety yeah exactly and um which you, i mean you mentioned therapists uh, what's interesting is that uh, in the uh, in the states one survey of uh, psychiatrists found that more than half of of therapists felt they weren't adequately adequately trained adequately prepared to deal with the mental health impacts of of the climate crisis um so they felt that because it's such a unique type of anxiety and also because the problems are rooted in science mm. it's it's very hard for them without proper training of knowing exactly how the climate crisis works so to deal with that and actually a slightly surprising number of of therapists said that 
they didn't think it was actually that important. And and there are, I was sort of reading anecdotes of people who felt their therapists were like very dismissive of the problem and mm. said there's no no problem, which is necessarily the majority, yeah, like absolutely. But um, I think it goes to show that the, the difficulties of taking like problems rooted in science, in a particular scientific field to to others can can sometimes not help, can make it worse if you're if you're dismissed mm. out of hand. I mean, the climate crisis itself is really hard to talk about in general. So, you know, not everyone wants to hear it. Uh, you and you and I are climate yeah. communicators in our own way, and we, you know, we we know that sure, like a lot of the people that we speak to are on board with and accepting of the fact that it is happening. Because you know, there are still communities which don't accept that climate change is real, although it seems yeah. mad. Um, yeah, I mean, so you, that, that that tie generally is turning, I suppose, isn't it? But it's it's, it's so. slow going. Yeah, but but that's one of the things that has been kind of, and we'll get on to proper solutions in a bit as well. But one of them kind of was we need to increase climate literacy in practitioners um, yes. to help with the the tide of people that are now coming in and saying the climate crisis is is absolutely wrecking my mental health. Help, um, so they need to be like you said, yeah, strengthen their resources to be able to handle those kind of questions and concerns. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I, I found some sort of. It's quite hard beyond the sort of definition we found earlier to, to sort of describe what eco-anxiety really is. Uh, but I sort of found uh, some key features of eco-anxiety, which are generally replicated across across people. Um, I think it was, it was from a, a study of, of Australian participants. Um, they found that the, the features are basically uh, effective symptoms, they're called. So feelings of anxiety or worry. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Rumination. Uh, so persistent thoughts which can keep you up at night which you can't get away from ah yes behavioral symptoms so difficulty sleeping working studying socializing that thing we talked about earlier about it impacting your day-to-day functioning your day-to-day life and then anxiety at the end of it so not just um, anxiety about how helpless you might feel but also about then you start to, to really obsess over your own impact on the planet and start to feel guilt, I suppose, about choices you make and choices you can't get away from making in your day-to-day life. Mm. Well, this might be a good point then to to ask, Lloyd, how does your, you mentioned at the top that you've you've felt periods of eco-anxiety. How does, how does your eco-anxiety present itself to you? Because what you're saying just there about starting to obsess over whether as an individual you're A, making enough of a difference and B, whether it matters at all, that's exactly how mine presents and sometimes I'll, you know, do what I feel to be really small things and just think, God, what is the point? Yeah. And then other times it'll drive my action. And I think my entire career is now kind of leveraged on the fact that my eco-anxiety wants, I want to be doing stuff that's planet positive. So I'm building a business, side note, listeners building a business, <laughs> um, which is trying to make sure that all of my energy is doing planet positive things. But, yeah. but for me, that's, so I think, you know, in some in some respects having that level of eco-anxiety is, is a driver for me but it, it does keep me up at night it does make me worry intensely about whether everything that I'm doing makes any difference at all yeah what, what is what yeah, is your yeah. Thing I mean the thing I, I sort of go through uh, it's, it's a bit of a, a roller coaster ups and downs so so one day mm. I'll, I'll read some great stories about things people are doing um really positive actions and I think like great the tide is turning like you read like respondent uh, like survey responses about how like now the majority of people are worried about climate change so it is in the public consciousness great and then you just hit the next day and you just read a story you just hear something or you see litter in the street and it just like it just crashes you it undermines it all yeah, doesn't it yeah mm. um, and it, again like that feeling of helplessness I think um, which is why this podcast is a great little little therapy outlet session 
but yeah, it's that feeling of, okay, I'm, I'm really trying to make changes in my personal life. And then you go outside and you, you know, you're just aware of all the pollution. And yeah, that's the other thing as well. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, but now I go into a supermarket and all I can see is plastic. All I'm aware yeah. of is the sea of plastic on pretty much every single item. So it's just mm. this like suddenly this hyper awareness, which is good, really. Um, when you think about it, that, that you become hyper aware, but at the same time, it can be really um, very overwhelming. Be very overwhelming. It's like sort of always something around and it's like haze because you can't sort of it makes it harder to focus on, on what you're doing because all you can see is is the, the plastic wrapper on that or yeah. or, or, or the, the, the massive great polluting buses and stuff going past i don't know um mm. so yeah it's, it's real ups and downs for me yeah you are right i think i think yeah mine definitely oscillates and it depends what day you ask me yeah. as to how i'm feeling because, you know, like sometimes, so in my work, I work with a lot of small NGOs that are quite nimble and able to really like funnel their passion into doing what I think to be really good things. And I find a lot of hope in speaking to those people and, and watching their drive and the things that they're trying to do. And then you kind of snap out of this bubble that perhaps we and our community are in and like you see like Coca-Cola or something and you're like, for God's sake, what, how does it stack up against that? Yeah, yeah exactly. So it really, it, it really depends what I've seen recently and yeah, who yeah. I've spoken to. But I, I do get a lot of hope from people and people who are really that passion that really is coming across. And like you said, I think becoming much more prevalent in society now that people For sure, yeah. and that, are more accepting that, yeah. of climate change and more more in wanting action. And that's something to focus on, isn't it, really? You've got to really focus on it. But I, I would definitely say since I've uh, become become a parent, I'm, I'm, I'm even more sort of worried about the future, about what it's going to look like for him. What, what's he going to mm. inherit? Is he going to uh, know animals like particular animals only from from books and from from tv yeah. shows you know, just get the chance to see certain animals um is he going to be aware that you know certain weather events aren't were, were never the norm before mm. so yeah so it's definitely yeah well can i ask a quite a personal question on that front um, and this was something that came up with one of the listeners. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say any of our listeners' names that got in touch with this one. I'm gonna keep everyone anonymous, but but one one person got in touch saying, you know, she'd always wanted a really big family and she's now made the decision that she'll only have one child. Yeah. Was that something that kind of came across yours and Bryony's minds when you were thinking about starting a family? Was it a concern or like did it did it bother you guys? What's the Yeah, kind yeah, of- yeah. That, that that has actually entered into the conversation about whether we I mean it's it's a long way off if if we, we did want to have a second child, but that definitely has entered into the conversation before about what would the impact be? And yeah, we would only, I think we'd only commit to having a second child if we could be reasonably sure that we could mitigate a lot of the impacts that we, we felt we were making yeah. good sustainable choices all the time that, um, that helped out. Um, so yeah, it definitely has factored in into a conversation, but uh, yeah, I also see it as uh, re- Raising a little eco warrior, you know. Uh, yeah, to, to, well, this, to go is, this is the thing. So change. Nina Constable made a really great point, and exactly the same vein of view of saying, like, listen, I, I've always wanted to have a family. Um, it's a massive sacrifice if you've always wanted to have a family to to then not do that. That is a huge yeah. lifestyle change, and that's you, can, you can't ask anyone. In my in my opinion, you can't ask anyone to do anything or not do anything with their reproductive. Yeah, no, yeah sorry, yeah. we're not going to talk about America right now. So but it's yeah. very typical, um, but never mind. But Nina, Nina's point of view or, or the comment that she made was not every baby has the same carbon footprint because it depends entirely on how you raise it as well and, and the human that it turns into and you can nurture it into. So 
she's raising her son to be very kind of wild and naturey, and you know, like she's cycle him to preschool, mm. and they're all going to eat, you know, locally grown food and that kind of thing. So I don't think it is as simple as being like, how many children are you having? Yeah, I think it's yeah, yeah. very much nuanced with. How okay, you sure, maybe you're having them? three, you but you all them? eat your yeah. food from the garden, exactly. or you've got one, but you fly out on a private jet to go skiing three times every winter. You yeah. know, I think it's I think it's much more nuanced than that, and it's quite I think that pressure on parents or people that are thinking of becoming parents, there's already enough pressure. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's quite tough to then add all this kind of I think I think I know some people that were thinking of having a family and that that feeling of guilt around even wanting one, I think is absurd in some ways. It's unfair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm not, not necessarily like qualified really to, to say, to give an opinion, but I would say factor it in. Don't, yeah. don't, don't let it be the, the main factor. Don't let it consume you because there's a lot of good you can still do yeah. by having a child. You know, it's, it's, it's still an absolutely wonderful thing. Oh, yeah, I'm not qualified at all. I have no children or plans to have any at any point in the immediate future. You can borrow um, mine for a bit if you like. <laughs> uh, Teddy is gorgeous. I'll oh, hang yes. out with Teddy again anytime. <laughs> um, so so on on what the other listeners have kind of said, just um, just because I don't want this episode to purely be about yours and my experiences of eco-anxiety because everyone's experience is different. One, one listener said that she is kind of similar to us in that she's every day she feels like she's in a constant battle because she's learning more about how much we've messed up the planet and it makes her really demotivated. But at the same time, she gets this kind of flip switch, which kind of makes her then more motivated yeah. to do everything to save it, although it's a massive roller coaster. And I think that's precisely it. I mean, you described it as a roller coaster earlier as well. Yeah. I think taking I think taking stock of and seeing and appreciating that you're on a roller coaster is really important to help you deal with the fact you're on a roller coaster. That's my non-scientific advice and then we've also had someone who's mentioned that actually they had a massive career switch um recently they've made big lifestyle changes like things like their diet over the last couple of years and they used to work in a super wasteful industry basically with mega yachts and mega rich people who Mm. had so much money and didn't seem to give a care at all um but he feels better himself now that he's left that industry behind and has made those changes in his personal life, that's massively helped him with his ego anxiety. What, what, what a yeah. commitment. Yeah, what a commitment to make. Yeah, which I think is really good. And a couple of other people have, have said that like the way that they not deal with it maybe, but something that potentially helps them is to really talk to friends and family and people around them about the environment. Because one of the best things you can do, it has been said, is to talk to people about the climate and ecological crisis. And about the solutions, because yes. then you start to have a ripple effect beyond your own immediate circle. So I think this is a really good thing to celebrate. But yeah, a good couple of people have said, listen, I talked to my friends about yeah, it, whether yeah, they like it or not, they hear it from me, <laughs> you know, and slowly but surely you can watch slight changes being made. And, and it will work. sink in somewhere. It, it, yeah. it, it does work. Nothing works no. straight away. You're not going to suddenly, it's, it's, it's not like a movie or a TV show where you give a really inspirational speech and then you change someone's mind forever. <laughs> Nothing ever works like that. It's, it's, it's persistence in mm. an empathetic way. So it's, it's quite a fine line to walk, isn't it, between sort of being aggressively preachy and just sort of helping yeah. nudge them along the right way. You've just got to help people get there and also maybe help people feel like they've gotten there on their own. Yes, that's a good, that's an interesting point. If you yeah. see what I mean? So... How, how you work that in, I, I, I don't necessarily know, but you know, offering, so sort of generally explaining reasonings for you doing things and then offering them choices um, to sort of make their own decisions, perhaps. Um, 
so yeah, this this sort of idea of of influencing the immediate people around you kind of goes back to um, oh, do you remember ages ago? I said I went to a Jane Goodall talk, yes, and in America. she said yes, that's right. Um, just to, just to drop that in there. <laughs> um, when she was asked from a very young member of the audience how she sort of still finds the motivation when she's up against like conservation in general is up against well mm. everything. Um, she she said that what you should do is focus on your your little circle, your little patch of grass and tend it well. And then eventually you'll find that other people are also tending their patches of grass, their circles. And then those circles will eventually join. They'll meet up gradually with more people taking action. You'll fill in those blanks, which is quite a nice I way like of thinking that. about it, isn't I it? I like that. And it's Jane Goodall, so yeah, I mean, she can do disagree. no wrong. <laughs> but if you imagine that you're tending your little patch of grass and then your neighbour's suddenly like, well, their patch of grass looks quite nice. Mine doesn't look very nice. Perhaps, yeah, yeah, I mean, perhaps literally, this like, example is... A, a real-world example yeah. is maybe a bit different, but it, it started last summer, I think it was. We, we like made an effort to put a lot of flowers outside the front of the house. There's no grass out the front, but we, we live on a terrace street. Put a lot of flowers outside. And then, you know, within a couple of weeks, you see other people doing the same. It's sort of, it was it was really nice, actually. But by, oh, by the end of the summer, there were, there were loads of like hanging baskets. Yeah, quite, quite literally. Oh, I like that a lot. Um, should we have a little look at some of the solutions, perhaps? Because it's a very nebulous idea and there, and there aren't like, this will work, yeah, yeah, XYZ. Yeah. But there are, there are quite a few things to give you some hope when we are talking about eco-anxiety, don't you think? Absolutely. There are definitely things we can do. Don't worry about it. Let's start with um, a quote, if I can, from uh, you may. Tim Gordon, uh, ah. Preston Gordon from University of Exeter. You may remember. A, a marine biologist. Marine biologist from, from our, old, our old haunt. In one interview, he said, um, and I quote, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't a lot of time when I think, why do we bother? Um, but when you sit down, you chat to other scientists and have a bit of a think about it, you realise there's a huge amount we can do still. Yes, these places are in trouble, but it's in our power to protect what's left and make a meaningful difference. And that's why we do this. That's why we carry on. So a little, little bit of motivation. Oh, nice one, Tim. Well, he well, Tim. works with Steve Simpson. So if I can nudge people back also, we did talk a little bit about yeah. uh, climate grief um, with Steve Simpson in, in that episode as well. I'll drop a link to that in the description. But he's another marine biologist who very much shares an optimistic approach of we've got a lot of tools and we've got a lot of science and we've got a lot of knowledge behind us it's yeah. just implementing it and he gave me a bit more optimism in 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 seeing his optimism yeah 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 exactly which is fantastic and you know what i've seen a lot of interviews with 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 uh, experts with with scientists and they all pretty much say the same thing which is that eco-anxiety is actually the right response mm. to the scale of the challenge it's a correct being told yeah. that your world is on fire yeah, that, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Like if you see a bear coming at you, you you panic, right? You don't yes. think like, oh, what is the root of my panic? Is this based in something else? Should I feel bad about, like, am, am I broken? No, there's a bear coming at you. Is it Run my away fault for standing near a bear? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> but, it, but it is really important to acknowledge that we'll never really be rid of eco-anxiety in total until we fix all yeah. of the global environmental issues. Which makes things, which makes it such a difficult anxiety to tackle, as we've said. But it's also really important to realise that as an individual, you can't take on the entire environment crisis. It is such an existential crisis; you can't take it all on as a quick fix to support your mental health like yeah. that. It's, it's so overwhelming, and you have to 
look at it from a much smaller scale. Like you said earlier, we've got to kind of break it down and work out what you can do to feel yeah. as though you're having an impact because action, feeling as though you're having an, uh, doing an action and having an impact is one of the key things to feeling better about eco-anxiety. But you, yes, you just correct. have to temper that with, I cannot fix things across the entire planet overnight. But what you can do is channel your energies into something more local or within your own life and still see kind of meaningful impact. You're just not yeah. going to rewrite the IPCC Precisely. I mean, think about how dramatically we've seen the rise in vegetarianism and veganism. Yeah, that's true. And, and how much plant-based food alternatives there are now and how mainstream that is like 20 years ago 25 mm. years ago it was so it was niche wasn't it and you, you were ridiculed for being like, a like vegan a and all a, you had to eat was hummus yeah. and peas yeah exactly now, now it's it's so common no one it's, it's no raise an eyebrow yeah it's mainstream every single supermarket I go and has their own range mm. of of plant-based mints and meatballs and burgers amazing so it can make a difference totally and um earlier you said you could maybe think about eco-anxiety as being what, what, what was the word you used? You said like eco-grief? Eco-grief and climate grief. Mm. Yeah, you could also think about it on the flip side as being eco-empathetic or eco-compassionate. Oh, that's nice. Because you are worried about the environment, you're worried about the ecological doom we might be facing. So these oh. feelings um, connect you to, to wildlife, to the environment, to others. As we said, that, that is a good thing ultimately. Yes. And, and speaking of wildlife, the environment and others... The research is starting to show that one of the best things you can do for anxiety total, not just eco-anxiety, is connecting more with nature. Now, in the UK, we're one of the most nature-depleted spaces on the planet. In Europe, we're also one of the most nature-disconnected communities. So we have lost so much of the goodness that nature connection gives to us just by virtue of where we are. I know we're very privileged in other ways to live where we are. But we, but we are not necessarily in, in a society that values or spends much time, quality time, in quality nature. So we we know that, you know, spending more time in nature, spending more time outside, listening to the birds and the wind rustling through the trees, identifying flowers and planting things and gardening, all of this stuff. We, we know that it's really good for your mental and your physical well-being. And they're both really closely tied. If you're not looking after your mental well-being and you're not looking after your physical well-being inevitably one of the other kind of snaps like doing physical things can be wonderful for uh, if you're struggling with things like anxiety but if you're connecting with nature more and you're spending more time thinking about nature and the connectedness of all of life systems you start to put nature into more of your decisions and your lifestyle choices so then you also start to feel as though you're taking more action, which helps you get more of a handle on the eco-anxiety and the feeling of kind of hopelessness and lack of individual action. So one of the best things you can do if you're starting this kind of, oh my God, how do I deal with these very overwhelming feelings is to make more time to go outside, go to the countryside, go to nature reserves, walk along rivers, you know, listen to birdsong and, and don't always walk around with your headphones is one of my favourite tips because it, it removes you slightly from the environment that you're in, walk around and just listen to the sounds around you and let that bathe over you and start to really connect with what's going on around you. You'll start to see so many amazing things. It's really inspiring. But it's something that we as humans are supposed to do and we've lost. We've completely lost the ability to do this. But it is very ingrained in us to react very positively to nature and to nature connection. And something I thought as well, if you're creative or if you're not and you just fancy giving it a go, one of the best ways, I think, to connect with nature is to go outside with like your sketchbook, your paints, um, you know, if you're a writer, go and write some poetry, sit down somewhere. Just like trying to draw something that you see 
in connects you yeah. with whatever it is so intensely because you're having to focus on it and really look at the shapes and the colors and the way things work you know that kind of stuff even if you spend half an hour outside just sketching and even if you think your sketching is absolute pants at the end of it that will have done wonders for your for your mental yeah. health and the amount of connection that you felt with that natural environment so that's my that's task really yeah. really great advice really like that and if you do um, do that please send us your pictures i would love to see people's nature inspired yeah, yeah. art yeah, that'd be fantastic. I mean, yeah, so get get out there, reconnect with nature around you. Um, try and join a community. Yes. Um, f- find like-minded people, talk it through with them, what works for them. Um, get involved with community projects, local projects. That can definitely very quickly reinvigorate your faith in humanity. And, you know, that was to get you outdoors. Um, and it just can make a world of difference. And, and talk about the changes you make. So um, obviously we bleat on about our changes quite often on here talk, talk talk to your friends and family about the changes you've made like don't 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 be ashamed of it be be positive talk about the challenges as well so what was difficult about it um yeah and if you found a way to make it easier maybe you can give that to them and say oh if you were thinking of doing this thing this bit didn't work but here's an easy route for you to do x y and z you never know that's that's one of the amazing things like you said with connecting with community you're also more likely to connect with a lot of people that might have brilliant tips not only for you taking yeah, action yeah, yeah. but probably also for dealing with eco-anxiety they'll have had their own solutions their own feelings and eco-anxiety can feel very isolating so to tackle that isolation and the hopelessness and the individual kind of like what am i doing sensation being part of an active community like you said like you're like a wildlife trust or something go and restore a river or just go on a nature guided walk or join extinction rebellion or something like that you can you can suddenly find yourself in a wonderful welcoming community and and the aloneness of it all can start to be a bit tempered and you can you can get strength from everyone around you yeah so true and and if after all this uh, you still feel um that eco anxiety has got you down to the point of not being able to function day to day then yes uh, absolutely go go talk to a therapist uh, maybe ahead of time when you figure out who to talk to ask them if they've dealt with um issues of eco anxiety before because that would that would be a really good sort of way of screening them um because, yeah, more, more people short to therapists anyway. But, uh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a good point, actually. And also, um, on the note of kind of working with medical practitioners, GPs are starting to prescribe time in nature for low levels of anxiety. And I think this just goes to show how much science there is behind getting outside, getting physical with your hands, working on nature, spending time in nature. Because People, as a first step, instead of going straight to medication, which seems to be pretty much what we've done for everything in the last, like, what, 50 years, just chuck drugs at people. Now people are getting prescribed. Listen, go once a week with your local volunteering group to go and clean up this pond or go and help us manage this woodland. Um, and, and they're finding the results of this absolutely incredible. Um, and it's becoming the first step towards people's kind of recovery journey. And yeah, the thing yeah. is, it gives you long-term tools to deal with this. It's not just have these drugs and we'll see if you feel better in six months, a year. It gives you the resilience in your person, in your character, in your routine for this to be a lifestyle change that actually works for you for the rest of your life. And I just, I just yeah, think that's yeah. brilliant. Green prescribing is fascinating. Yeah, and th- you don't necessarily have to wait for a GP to prescribe it for you it, it is possible to, to go to them and ask yeah. for a prescription because quite often um, there are organizations um, and landowners that put aside specific times or plots of land for for the reason of, of social prescribing mm. so um if, if that's something you feel you need then then t- take the initiative and go and ask a gp about it yeah or prescribe yourself some time or prescribe yourself Just join, a, join a volunteer go group on. locally there are loads there are loads like my local wildlife trust do things like 
building hedges or managing hedgerows or like laying paths and all sorts of stuff, stuff that can just get you outside once a week or so in the wilds uh, with people that also like wilds, I think is, is invaluable. Um, but that also, so I, I went to the, the American Psychological Association who produced a really interesting mm-hmm, report mm-hmm. about, uh, it was called Mental Health and Our Changing Climate, specifically looking at how do we address eco-anxiety, both in people and in practitioners. One of the things that they said, which I thought was really interesting, was that people's willingness to support and engage in climate solutions is more likely to increase if they can relate that to an experience which feels relevant to their own health and well-being, so if they're getting something out of it. So people were potentially more likely to go and volunteer to clean up a river, not just for the good of cleaning up a river, but if they also knew that it was going to benefit them in some way. So I think spreading this understanding that doing good for the planet also does good for you can only be a good thing in terms of leveraging more people being happier, healthier, but also creating a happier and healthier planet. And they said that also we've got, as we said, action is one of the biggest things to help you feel more in control of the situation. There are things in our lives that we can do that give us very immediate, large impacts on like, you know, climate solutions. They are already accessible to us. Things like adopting public transport, switching to green energy, changing to a green bank, and spending, you know, greener commuting. All of these things are daily solutions. And plant-based diets as well. They're things that are already very accessible to us and can help curb your eco-anxiety and stress, they said. So that was the first thing I did when I moved into my house was switch to renewable energy because I was kept up at night <laughs> thinking yeah. about it, which uh, seems absurd in hindsight, but was very real at the time because that's yeah. the way eco-anxiety works. It absolutely does. One very cool last thing before we wrap up comes from um, two researchers, Sam Gandhi and Ros Watts. And they produced a very cool paper in, in 2021. Now, Lloyd, you know I love a beaver. You know I work with beavers. Yes, I do. Yes, I'm very aware of your love of beavers. They're yeah. fascinating animals, amazing eco-engineers. But they published a paper. So, so Sam Gandhi is an ecologist and Ros Watts is a psychologist. And they teamed up to have a look at the psychological impacts of spending time in beaver wetlands. There is genuine published science now that essentially shows that spending time in a beaver-managed wetland, because these... Right, so let me take it back to the beginning. So a beaver will move into a landscape if reintroduced to it, because we've lost them in the UK and we're bringing them back. And what they will do is create, very quickly, I might add, amazing wetland habitats that store carbon, store water, purify water, and create habitats for pretty much like, like so many insects and birds and fish and all sorts. They can turn what seems to be a very ecologically dead part of a river into an amazing abundant wetland which is suddenly full of life and sounds and and noises and and experiences so that's brilliant for biodiversity it's brilliant for climate but it is also absolutely brilliant for people so in britain per person there aren't actually very many like good nature experiences quality nature experiences that are accessible to people so you can go to a park where it's really manicured and there's no bird song and there's three trees and sort of that's a nature experience but Putting on your welly boots and going into a wetland which didn't exist two years ago and now supports an crazy amount of biodiversity and birdsong is one of those nature experiences which they call a quality nature experience. And because of this understanding of nature connection and exposure for mental health becoming so like prevalent in our well, just something that we're understanding better. They basically had a look at, you know, how do people respond to spending time in the tranquility of a beaver wetland? Um, and, and they responded incredibly well. You know, the, the results were, were such that, you know, if we can get people into beaver wetlands, that can only be a good thing. Also for beavers. Great if more people are team beaver. 
Yeah, fantastic. I, I wonder if part of the reason it's such a positive experience in that case is not only being able to get in a wetland, but knowing the the sort of background, the story behind it, like that that it was that it's just sprung up that it's beavers responsible for everything that's around you. Yeah, that'd be really cool. It, yeah, you're to- you're totally right. They said that it's because beaver is such a hopeful animal as well. Because the beaver yeah. is a story of hope for climate as well. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an amazing. So if you if you live anywhere near a beaver wetland, <laughs> off you pop. Get on down. Yeah. Oh, what were you saying then about uh, going to your local park, um, whether that's good or bad? Um, I, just very quickly, if you are looking for quality green space, usually the, the best ones have got a green flag award. Um, and if you go on the green flag award website, um, they have a map of, of all of their sort of awarded green spaces. So it, it's usually quite a good indicator of a quality green space because they have to hit certain markers in terms of... Uh, biodiversity and um you know how well it's kept that sort of thing so it's quite a nice little little thing to have a look at that's a great tip i had no idea about that and then one final tool or potential recommendation from us tried and tested as well well me personally i don't know about you if you are struggling with things like eco-anxiety these kind of meditative practices and, and taking care of yourself in a more holistic sense apps like headspace uh breathe and kind of wim hof they do do a, they, so many people they have helped just just taking that time to build in healthy habits to check in with yourself see how your mind is feeling try and acknowledge those feelings try and see maybe where they're rooted and and learn to deal with them in a way that's really healthy to you um just spending a couple of minutes every day doing something like headspace um it can be can yeah, be a fantastic. really useful and powerful tool fantastic all right i think that is uh, enough to, to chew on for for now so so perhaps we'll wrap up there shall we yeah so th- thanks everyone for putting up with us i do hope that that was helpful um in in some sense it's quite a tricky topic to talk on it's quite uh, cathartic to talk about it though yeah and also thank you to everyone that wrote in with their own experiences um what we know they're very personal we really appreciate people taking the time to share share their you know anxieties their concerns with us um, and we hope we've offered some solutions to, to help you out a little bit yeah we will leave it there thank you again for listening um quick reminder that of course, all the opinions and everything we say is is uh, our, our own opinions, not that of uh, any any employers or anyone else. Uh, other than that, if you want to get in touch with more eco anxiety stories, um, experiences, or anything else besides, then uh, get in touch with us: email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the, the, the usual gubbins. And we'll <laughs> we'll see you again soon. Fantastic! We'll see you soon. Oh, don't forget to go on, go and leave us a nice little five star review as well oh, yes. on whatever platform you're listening Do. on. That would that would make our day our eco-anxiety riddled days <laughs> and uh, yeah we'll see you for another episode very soon yeah thanks everyone and before we sign off for this episode we've got a bonus section for you if you enjoyed our episode on antarctica recently our lovely friend Susie from the casual birder podcast and a fellow member of our secret independent nature podcasting whatsapp group has actually been to antarctica she sent us through a little clip about her experiences of the tourism to this incredible place and the ways in which it's being done responsibly to help protect it Hi Emma, it's Susie here from the Casual Birder podcast. I really enjoyed your recent episode with Ryan Dalton about Antarctica and I learned new facts about this awe-inspiring continent from your episode. I was very fortunate to visit the Antarctic Peninsula myself in 2014 on a small cruise ship holding 200 passengers. The landings were the most tightly controlled element of any vacation destination I've ever visited. While it was nearly 10 years ago, From following Antarctic tourism sites and listening to talks about visiting the continent, I know that the controls I experienced are still in place, 
and rightly so. In the early 1990s, the tour operators that were active in Antarctica realised that to safeguard the wildlife and environment, they should work together and the organisation IATO, International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, was created. It's a self-regulating body made up of the majority of tour operators that visit Antarctica. According to its website, its aims are to promote safe, environmentally responsible private sector travel through a variety of processes, including codes of conduct for wildlife watching, protection of specific sites, waste management and preventing the introduction of non-native species. The ships also provide transport for the equipment and supplies of scientific staff stationed in Antarctica and provide data for research projects by encouraging tour guests to take part in community science. As a visitor to Antarctica, you may not be aware of all the efforts that go on behind the scenes, such as the requirement that tour operators coordinate their itineraries to ensure that no more than one vessel visits a landing site at any one time. Activities are planned to have a minor or transitory impact on the wildlife and the environment there. Antarctica is a vast continent and only a small percentage is visited by tourists. The small ship tours, often called expedition tours, are the only ones that allow people ashore, and then in maximum group sizes of 100 people. For our ship, this meant that we were assigned groups and were scheduled to go ashore at specific times, with the groups taking it in turns to be the first ashore. Before our first landing, we all attended a mandatory IATO briefing. It explained the precious nature of the ecosystems we would see, how to behave around the animals we might encounter and the distances to keep from them, the importance of understanding penguin behaviour, for example, not impeding them when they emerge from the sea so they can get to their nests, and not walking across the penguin highways, which can cause holes in the snow that penguins can get trapped in, the importance of disinfecting footwear to avoid bringing foreign organisms ashore, the importance of cleaning outerwear between landings for the same reason, and remembering the golden rule of taking nothing but photographs, recordings and memories and of leaving nothing behind except footprints. These mandatory presentations continue to be given on every tour ship before the first landing. I'm pleased that they're mandatory, as it means that no one has the excuse of ignorance about these important observances. Once ashore, tour groups have a ratio of one guide to 20 passengers, and this ensures that, should anyone deviate from the requirements, it can be addressed quickly. As visitors to Antarctica, we were very much aware of our privilege to be able to see the wildlife and environment firsthand. Our experiences, along with the education programmes and lectures provided on the ship, encouraged us to be ambassadors for the continent. You can find out more by visiting iato.org. That's I-A-A-T-O dot org. And if you'd like to hear about the penguin species I saw on my trip, Take a listen to my two episodes, episode 9 and 10, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts, or on my website at casualbirder.com forward slash penguins. Thanks so much, Susie. You can find links to her podcast in the episode description too. 